Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. Today on Conversations from Here, I speak with author and yoga teacher, Patty Wildeson. We talk about her years as an addiction recovery counselor, bringing up a special needs child, teaching yoga to kids and adults with specified needs or requirements, the genesis of her book, Yoga Bowl, and the challenges and origins of addiction in our society today. We take a deep dive into the healing power of movement and awareness practices and the importance of learning from those who are different from ourselves. Enjoy. This is a great talk. Here's me and Patty. Hello there, Patty Wildeson. How are you doing? I'm good. Hi, Dana. Thanks for inviting me to chat today. So in full disclosure, Patty is a dear friend of my last guest, Vicki Rose, otherwise known as Jop Dottom in the yoga community. And uh, so Patty's been kind enough to come and speak with us today about um, all kinds of stuff. I'm, I'm really interested in your story. And, um, and let's just kind of start in the beginning. Where, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Southern California. I was born in Santa Monica, so I'm local here to the Los Angeles area and pretty much always have been. So you're so a I moved to, <laughs> yeah yeah you're a local girl that's rare because so many people are from other places here. I know and then move I yeah I haven't I left I went to Arizona to go to college but other than that I haven't really left I've moved around the Southern California area um, but always staying kind of close proximity to LA. So I have to ask you, you mentioned Arizona and I noticed that on your, uh, I, I noticed on your Facebook thing that you're, you went to Arcadia High School. I did. That Arcadia High in Phoenix? No, right here in the San Gabriel Valley. Okay, because I was going to say, because I'm from Phoenix and so I went to Arcadia High in Phoenix. So I thought, did she go to my high school? So that would have been weird. But, but where did you go to, where did you go to college? That weird. So I went for a year. I went to Arizona State University. It's my alma mater. Right there. Yeah. It's you. <laughs> and, uh, but I only stayed a year. So then when I went back to school, I um, did a course at Pacific Oaks College right in Pasadena mm -hmm. uh, for mm -hmm. counseling. So it was a, certified in drug and alcohol counseling. Mm -hmm. And that was, was that, um, because I, I did notice that that you're, you were a counselor in, in rehab centers. What, what was the impetus for that? How did you get interested in that? Uh, personal experience. <laughs> so I, I um, which, you know, and I have to say, I've been pretty protective of my anonymity over the years. So this, you know, there's a step out of my comfort zone. And in the past, it's been more about the kids, you know, raising kids. It's like, you know, you just feel like, okay, my story is my story, but you know, it's like, they've got their life and it doesn't need to overshadow or hinder them in any way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I ended up in a, a treatment center almost dead by the time I was 20. 
And so I uh, stayed there for a year and then went on a training program there as like a residential live-in staff and then training out, live out. And at that time, then I uh, went to school at Pacific Oaks and yeah, kind of jumped right in. It was a whole new lifestyle and it really resonated with me at the time. So jumped right in. I find find with, with everyone, it seems that it's the moment where they they have maybe the in some ways the worst thing that could happen to them is the thing that leads them into the thing that they're supposed to be doing or or one of the things they're supposed to be doing and right uh, and i would imagine that working in the treatment environment you're also reinforcing your own recovery and you're also speaking from you you have cred with your clients because you've been there you know what they're going through Right. I think that's an important part. I mean, it's not absolutely necessary, but there's something about just like, oh, you know, he or she, they actually get it, you know, like they understand it's not just somebody in a business suit trying to tell me what to do and how to live my life. You know, there's something in that relation that, you know, understanding how you've been where I've been. I want to go where you're going, you know, yeah, that internal connection. Because I think it's really important. I taught briefly meditation and mindfulness in a treatment center, a couple of different treatment centers in LA. And I do not have a background in addiction or in counseling or, or as a therapist or anything like that. And so that was the one little, you know, I was able to overcome it in a certain way because I was facilitating a very specific class. So it was for mindfulness and meditation. But there was that little thing that was a little bit of a, I don't know if it was a barrier so much, but let's say it was maybe a speed bump, especially for Mm. some of the clients, because I was not a person who had their experience or could relate directly to their experience. So, um, and I, I, I have friends who are also, uh, one actually is in training to become a counselor in recovery. And then I have a friend who is, uh, who has a a doctorate in psychology, who has become a, has become a a therapist now. So, um, but it's been a pretty amazing thing to talk to these folks because there's a lot of people who've dealt with addiction and especially here we are in, you know, the Los Angeles area, the land of the dreams and so many people get caught up into it. Yeah, yeah, it was the you know 1980s. It was the Hollywood and Los Angeles were in my backyard, and you know a lot going on. So, and I actually um, have I'm working on a second book now where I really do a lot of disclosure about that, and it's a blend of yoga and um, and the twelve steps, basically how they weave together so seamlessly. Um, but maybe talk about teaching. So I have taught in treatment centers. Um, different ones around the, that was my, like, I'm going to teach, I'm going to go, I'm going to share this technology with recovering people. It's going to be great. You know, that was my original plan with teaching yoga. It took seven years before I ended up in a treatment center. And I find it actually challenging, even though like I relate, I've been there. I've not, like, I either find I want to, you know, kind of go into uh, counselor mode and, and maybe not be as soft as I should be. Um, yeah. So I found it challenging. I've, uh, we transitioned um at the last studio and somebody who's local in that area has like taken over and she's been there for years and you know not in recovery and she's absolutely great like loves it so I think you know it doesn't have to be a precursor but it it can help yeah so you were I know that you started teaching yoga in 2004 but before that you were you were a counselor quite a bit before that Um, right and and tell me a little bit about your son Kaler and about his, his issues and how you got inspired to um, work with special populations. Or special special needs. needs. Yeah, that kind of seems to be my niche, no matter what the special needs are. Like I have classes full of special populations. So yeah, I really, I did the counseling thing for, and, and I mean, I loved it, but, but it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to return to um, on a full-time basis. So I did, it was about a decade, like maybe 10 years, um, mostly residential, some hospital but still like a live-in type situation. And then um, 
I started having kids when I was working at the local hospital here. And so after my son was born, well, my daughter too, she's older, but I went back on a very part-time basis, like some weekend hours, some evenings, and you know, that kind of worked for a while. And then my husband and I realized we never see each other. Like he worked during the day, I worked nights and weekends. Like, yeah. okay, we were juggling like, these kids around, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We'd pass. All right. See you later. <laughs> so, um, it got to a point, it was right around then when um, Kayla was probably not even two years old and our, was obviously is having struggles really since day one. Like he never met any of the regular milestones. And, you know, looking back then, my denial as a parent was just so intact. It was so strong. You know, I'd had a daughter and I already, and she was, you know, two and a half when he was born. And so know she's three she's this you know kind of four and and growing and I'm like oh I always heard boys develop differently than girls and this Mm -hmm. and that and like I just you know that first year did not see it like you know the doctors didn't know what don't I don't know you know he's so big maybe he's can't hold himself up maybe that you know it was like always Mm -hmm. something something and so we did start seeking uh, help through neurology with him at 16 months and same thing they couldn't diagnose anything then well we'll just kind of keep an eye on him and And so uh, a lot of tantrums, a lot of behavior, but he didn't fit anything classic. It's not like he had language and lost it, which at the time back, you know, 23 years ago, that was kind of the classic symptom of autism. You know, he he wasn't in any box and and he was very, very large. So um, yeah, so it didn't have a two and a half. Okay, he's he's not talking. We're having a lot of tantrums, a lot of behavior. I mean, he can't communicate, but it's just there's... and not a lot of eye contact, not only wanted me to hold him, like not, not a lot of connection with people mm-hmm. beyond the immediate family. And, um, and so I called the school district for speech therapy and that just got the ball rolling. And, you know, then he's getting uh, services through the county and, and, you know, kind of, they direct us what's to do. Let's get in speech. Let's get in physical therapy, OT, you know, continue seeing the neurologist and, and so got him right into this great special needs preschool. And, you know, this time he still doesn't have a diagnosis. So we're kind of going through and, and so he starts preschool at three and, and he's getting great services and he's like starting to talk and, and, um, you know, put a few words together by five. So we're like, okay, you know, that's <laughs> coming together, even though, you know, speed. Yeah. Yeah. Really slow, but that, and then, um, at the end, we're getting ready to leave preschool and he's five and he's going to transition to another, you know, special kindergarten class, but a different facility. And the teacher said, you need to go back to um, your regional center and try and get a diagnosis because he was, had already been cut off of services. And it's not, you know, it's more like they just kind of guide and give, you know, you can do this, you can do this. There's this option. You're plugged into the system that way. And so we did. And, and so I went to the appointment and I'm frazzled. His behavior was horrible. He's everywhere. And I'm like, you know, just completely frazzled. And the woman spends an hour with us and looks at me at the end. She's like, well, obviously he's autistic. I'm like, I'm okay. So, you know, and so it was a relief, but also a shock. And then that same year, again, because he wasn't anything like classic, um, and I don't think anyone does, you know, it's like, it's the spectrum is, it's not just like long, it's, there's a lot of depth to it as well. Right, and right. so he was also diagnosed with an overgrowth syndrome. So is he's large, the, he's got behavior the, issues. Is that the Soto syndrome? Soto syndrome. Yeah. And, and what is it exactly? Is it a metabolic thing or is it? It's, um, well, there, this is so hard because some of these overgrowth syndromes and that's the, the best guess they could give at the time because there's not a uh, there's a test that can confirm it but not one that can totally rule it out so it is some type of overgrowth syndrome sotos is what the name that was given and so we've kind of gone with that so it's characterized by rapid bone growth um and like it keep growing they're quite large the people with um uh, Soto syndrome. And then um, through adolescence years, a lot of aggression. So speech delays, they're hard to understand and aggression. So all of this just fit the bill for him. Um, yeah, so I quit counseling and kind of went to work being a mom. And at that time, I was uh, taking yoga teacher training, yoga ended up in a class, saved my life. And so um, we started doing, you know, the classic OTPT 
speech, but a lot of alternative. I find chiropractic for him is invaluable. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a healer. We went to the Amen Clinic for, you know, kind of brain scans and, and worked a lot of natural supplements and herbal supplements and amino acids um, rather than just you know, I mean, you know, some of the medications are talking about at that time when he's just little four or five, yeah. you know, six, seven, like would just sedate him. And so we, right. you know, just try to a range of, of alternative as well as Western medicine. I'm not, you know, giving any type of medical advice, but yeah. like we, it looked, you know, it was a, a, a wide range of things. And that's, and that's the thing is like you as a parent, you want the best for your kid and you're trying what works. You know, mm -hmm. Western medicine is great for certain things. And then for other things, it's, it's not, it's like any good doctor will tell you, look, we're really not that great on the chronic condition thing. Like we're great at trauma. We're great at ac acute conditions and, and for diagnostics, but not so much for treatment for these long-term things. And so you, you kind of find yourself using what's best from Western medicine and then what's best from any complementary therapies to try to navigate, I imagine. Yeah, and yoga was big for him. I, and I would take him to a class, some, you know, the kids are always better when it's not their mom teaching them. Now he's fine. I teach, I have young adults and teens that I teach every week and he's fine. But so he always really resonated with the mantra. So mantra has always been a big part. Um, yeah. And so it was just, it's been an interesting journey, but it, uh, I mean, he was probably, I don't know, 10 or around that age, maybe a little older when I started teaching family style special needs classes, because I just found, you know, some of the yoga techniques so important, um, you know, meditation, especially, and, and working with them, a healer, a local healer here, uh, Rosalind Bruyere, she's able to see the auras. And so I've learned just fascinating things that I, I'm, I've shared now <laughs> in a recent book, but I mean, people just don't know the expression of the aura is different for somebody who is autistic or has sensory processing issues than it is for quote unquote, the neurotypical person walking around. So, and, and you said that he re really resonates with the mantras. Mm -hmm. So he connects to the sound current then. Yes. Yeah. Rama Dasa Sase Sohang every night for, I don't know, 15 years <laughs> or maybe longer. <laughs> and so, so it was funny. It took me like years of singing it every night in his room. And while well, we do use pressure points on the hands and, you know, just for calming and that. And then I realized, oh, I could pop a CD on and that thing will run for an hour. <laughs> so. Do you think that maybe your background as a counselor also maybe kind of prepared you in a certain way to be able to be really patient with him and to be very, you know, present and, and all that, you think it kind of trained you in a certain way? I think it helped now. And I wasn't, I haven't always been patient. Like, you know, we have our days. <laughs> I try, I try, but a little disclaimer there. There's plenty of days where there's been no patience in the house. <laughs> We've all just been pushed to that edge. But um, yeah, I mean, I just think the background in human development was yeah. helpful mm -hmm. when I could step out of that denial, like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, there's some chatter challenges here. And, and then, uh, yeah, I've, you know, working with clientele that has have been challenging in the past, I think that probably helps just, yeah. And do you think maybe it's a little easier to see or to be able to maybe to, um, whether whether it's how how you interact with so like when, when it's your own child do you feel that maybe like you said you, you that maybe there was a little bit of denial in the beginning you know because it's your kid and you maybe because you're in the situation so closely that maybe you don't see certain things whereas maybe it's almost a little bit easier to work with other people who have kids who have special needs and maybe you're Maybe you see them more clearly. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I think it took me to kind of get out of that denial and see all the things. And I mean, and, and I just say it by those people, you know, like when kids interact in this, it's like, oh, I, you know, it's like I could just, I can I pick up on it. Like, you know, oh, the doctors say maybe it's my, you know, I don't say anything, but it's like, yeah, I can really like kind of get that feel for um, the way the kids are functioning. 
but yeah, it's, it is that denial is so strong. I was just so shocked, you know, and it, it took years and years. And then going back, I look at videos and pictures and things from the first year of life. I'm like, oh yeah, I like did not see it. <laughs> but I think that's what we all do, you know, because like you, it's your little one. You want them to be, you know, healthy and whole and like developing quickly and, you know, be ex being exceptional in all these ways. And, and, and it can be hard to, to, to maybe see an issue, you know? Yeah. No, it's just like, oh, this is my baby. I just, you know, I just love him. So yeah. Yeah. Like he's marching to his, his own drummer. That's it. <laughs> you know, and in some ways, you know, he, he is, but so you, okay. So you got your, your, you did your Kundalini yoga certification in 2004 and then you started yes. teaching after, mm -hmm. after that did you did you immediately start working with um as you say um non-typical yogis or were you teaching regular classes or well i was doing both like i i was like so at that time i was in the best shape of my life i'm ready let's go 108 frogs we're working hard we're gonna yep. you know yep. so i'm like set out and i'm at the local um club but yeah I think that wasn't my first place so I ended up so this is where I kind of took that first like oh okay having to look at the Kriyas a little bit differently and make choice you know offer choices and modifications and I do have a, a background in um, Hatha yoga as well so I was able to give modifications where in Kundalini in the training it's not so heavy on the posture there's a lot of philosophy so you know sometimes if you've only done that like okay well what do I do if I can't do this full cobra or full wheel or so I had that ability um, yeah. to give modifications. So I end up at um, uh, teaching gentle yoga that the a teacher had left. And so there was a spot open for a gentle Kundalini yoga class. And so I just show up and I'm like, you know, so I'm like early thirties or yeah, 35, mid thirties. And so I've got a room full of, you know, 70 years old, 80 year olds. I'm like, oh, you know, what am I going to do at the time? It was like perceived and and so I like quickly learned that, you know, any um, set can really be modified. And so I, I do include that in like in the, my seniors, people who have um, like movement limitations, like arthritis, spinal issues, new hips, new knees are waiting for yeah. replacements. All of these things play into that. And so um, I include them in my special populations because it's not just a traditional like, oh, we're going to yoga, boom, this is just right. do the class. Like there are a lot of considerations yeah so that came right away right away at first i was like i don't and i mean i just i mean i i love this population i'm catching up with them now i, I, I tease them i'm catching but up we all are <laughs> so we're gonna be there we're gonna be there and not too long so you gotta get you know prepared but you know one of the things that um i think a lot of people uh, people who don't do yoga have this idea in their minds that um you know they they imagine you know, some, some glorious fit goddess in her, in her spandex, you know, doing, doing Ashtanga or, you know, flow or all that stuff, but yoga, there are so many different varieties of it. And of course, Kundalini yoga is known as the yoga of awareness because of the emphasis on the, the meditations and the mantras. But, um, there's a thing that I know I used to hear a lot from people that say, oh, I, I can't do yoga because I'm not flexible enough because they have it in their, they see they, in their minds, they've got this beautiful yogini in their heads. And the thing is, is that everyone can do yoga. It's wherever you are at that moment, even if that means sitting there on your mat and just taking in the energy of the room, if that's what you have to do, then that's what you have to do. And so people find, I, I know I, I would teach a lot of older people and, and, you know, maybe people with some issues and it would be whatever you can do and then moder and then, you know, modifying asanas, you know, so, or, or the way that someone was sitting to make it easier. And then they realized that they could get a lot out of it and then also get a lot out of the mantras and the, and the meditative aspect of it. And so then they realize that they can really participate and they can benefit and they don't have to be a 25 year old, you know, stretchy yogini. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and then I realize, oh, there, there isn't any limit, you know? And then what happens is that lo and behold, they start to become more flexible. Hey, you know, and even if that flexibility is maybe an awareness in mind, 
you know, mm -hmm. even, and, and then also they do get more flexible physically, even if just a little bit, you know, and that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm fond of saying, and this is actually where um, the title for my book came from is, so I tell people, so I hear it all the time still, oh, I can't do yoga on Netflix. Well, I can't. And it's like, okay, it, there's no prerequisite. There's no requirement, no, you know, no belief is requirement, no physical requirement. If you could breathe, you could do yoga. And so what I would be fond yeah, of telling you, yeah, I would start <laughs> with that. If you can breathe, you can do yoga. And then I would say yoga is doable for everybody, for everyone. Again, if you have this breath, you can do yoga. Um, and one morning it came out yoga bowl and I kind of chuckled and this was probably a decade ago. I'm like, oh, there's a title for a book. And I laughed it off. I mean, I shared that in class and went on about my business because yeah. it's like, I just believe like yoga, like everybody is able. I've taught children who are um, in wheelchairs, blind and deaf come to yoga class. Uh -huh. I mean, so it's like, you don't tell me you're not flexible <laughs> Or no, you sit in a chair. Yeah. <laughs> Kids in wheelchairs, you can't see or hear. That's, you know, yeah. there's no <laughs> excuse. If <laughs> yeah, yeah, if they can participate. And then others this summer, oh gosh, I mean, just some young adults who were um, very severely paralyzed, you know, but were participating on Zoom through a special needs camp and they just blow me away with the willingness and you know, it's like sometimes people, oh, just brush them off. I'm not going to talk. Well, no, they're here, like fully here, like can read and can this, although it's very hard to understand, but it's like not just counting anyone because of the way they look on the outside. Right. Like right now, if I look, you know, people look, oh, you're a yoga teacher, you know, I'm middle age, I'm heavier than I've ever been. I don't look like the typical yogini on the supermarket, you know, cover of the magazines in the supermarket checkout line. So uh, now I think people get that like a living example of yeah yeah that 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 uh, yoga teachers are people too mm -hmm. <laughs> and yes and we have our faults and we have our <laughs> strengths and all of that yeah. yeah and we have our limitations because the other thing is is like sometimes a student would say well um, you know you must be able to do all these different you know poses and whatnot and I would say actually no. There are certain things I can't do and won't do because, you know, certain things are contraindicated. If you have cervical issues, which I do, camel's not a good idea, you know, a modified version of it, but not letting the head drop back all the way because that can be a problem. So every, right. it's, it's always whatever. And, and, and some people are better at some things than others. And the thing is, is that I would always remind my students, look, you're not an you're not in a competition with the person on the mat next to you. This is where you meet yourself. So when you're, when you go, uh, when you go inside your awareness and you're doing your practice, you're not even thinking about these other people. You know, there's no, they're not thinking about you. About you. Yeah, that's what not, people, well, I don't want, I'm not flexible. I don't want anyone to see me when people are new. They really have that, like, are afraid, yeah. like, what are, is everybody in the class? They're going to know what they're doing. They're going to be looking at me. They're this and I, and it's like, you know, it's like, like nobody cares. Nobody's thinking about you. We're looking at you. Nobody cares. And so in some ways they're like, oh, oh, you know, like we get so self-important and we're just sure all eyes are on us. And so I can just put it that way, but you know, then they have to come experience it. Oh, you're right. Yeah. yeah. I can just do what I can do. Nobody cares. I, I had a student who was really reticent about, she said, well, I put on weight and, I, and I'm really self-conscious about what I look like. And I said, I said, but you know, you know, dear heart, nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody's gonna <laughs> because they're in, they're doing their practice and you're doing your practice and it's okay, you know, and, and start where you are. And so that kind of like makes people yeah. feel a little bit better because, because it's, it's not about you. <laughs> you know? It's not, it's not, you know, and then when, when did you, when did you put together the book Yoga Bowl? When did it come out? Oh gosh. So that, um, so, uh, you know, I, ha I, I would say I really kind of had an outline in my head for a couple of years, and this maybe was five or six years ago, like I had just kind of this nagging, like, this is a great title. And, and so what would happen, I'll tell you kind of what spurred it as I taught at the, the local studio, um, family yoga. So it was uh, special needs family yoga. I'm big on the parents coming too. I mean, first of all, they, they need it more than the kids, but yes. um, because they are drained beyond. Uh, but also because everyone has their unique stuff. And, and, you know, so to leave me in a room with 
we tend special needs kids that maybe I don't know them is, is not a good choice for a teacher either. So I'm big on family yoga. So if you're in schools, the teachers, the aides should be there. So that kind of stuff. So anyway, I just had this little nagging and a friend invited me on a, a yoga retreat about this spring will be for so like three and a half years ago. And so we went and, um, and it, it wasn't Kundalini, it was the hot tubs. And so every now and then I like to dive in and do that. It's good for my physical being. And, and uh, during one of the classes, a question was posed, like, what are you gonna, like, what are you gonna share? What are you leaving behind? What do you, it wasn't so much about legacy, but that was the way I interpret it. And so I'm like, I'm just going to get going on that. So I sat on the beach. We were sitting there, you know, wet, sandy, salty. And we had a notebook and I just started the outline for how, what are we going to do for special needs, you know, kids and adults, because some of the adults are functioning at the, you know, younger level. So kids yoga is fun for everybody. Um, so that's kind of where it started. And then it grew. And um, yeah, so I mean, I, I worked on it. The first draft came out, I would say within that year, I had it out, had someone look at it and, and then did made some more changes and then, you know, went through even more changes and then we decided to add a soundtrack. So yeah, it's, it went to the publisher last January and it took in, until, it was published in August. So it was even at the publisher for almost eight months, just making sure all of the permissions were Right. The content permissions were in order and, and set right. So it's been in my heart for a long time, I would say. And the title, and the title interestingly, was with you. Even way be, even before. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't, oh, and I'll, I know this is, but so I didn't, um, I didn't waver from the title. Like I just knew Yoga Bowl. Uh, yeah. So a gentle approach to yoga for special populations. And so yeah. that's why. So I, I talk about, you know, the seniors, those who have stuff going on in their body, kids, nonverbal. Oh, so I started to say, so what, what made me really sparked it is I'm, so I'm teaching, I have this class. And so if I was on vacation or if I needed to be out, nobody wanted to sub my class. They were all afraid to. And so that's why I thought I need to put it in a book. Like, how do you teach someone who's nonverbal? How do you teach someone who's just rocking? Like, do you make them purchase, you know, all of these questions, like nobody, right. even though they had years of experience, nobody wanted to send my class. There was one teacher, she had worked in a school. And so if she was available, yes, then I could get her later down the road um, when she joined us. But um, so that was what I thought. There's so much out there for kids and kids yoga, but how do we break it down for autism and down syndrome and Tourette's and cerebral, cerebral palsy and all of these, you know, developmental delays, um, sensory issues. Like, how do we break it down so people are comfortable? Like that, it's yogable. Anybody can practice. And and then you would in your family classes for these people, you would have people with different things going on. Maybe you'd, you'd have somebody with Tourette's over here and you have somebody else who's maybe in a wheelchair over here. And so the challenge I imagine would be how to, how to present it in such a way that it's relatable to all of these people with their various things that they have going on. Yes. Yeah. And so I would, you know, kind of pick sets. I have themes or stories, you know, holidays are a fun one, but um, different stories, different, all kinds of different things that we do. Um, trips around the United States, trips around the world, you know, you can just pull in postures for, for all kinds of stories that you make up. You can even read books and do the postures. Um, and so what I find having the full family participation is great because some of the part students, the young adults, teenagers, kids, children, um, need the parent or an aide to shadow them. Like they need help. Um, a lot of them, just the parent and the child, whatever age, um, participate independently. So it's really just, it's like you said, being where you are, starting where you are, everyone participates at their own level. And I never make anybody do anything. Like I don't wait until everybody gets into the posture. I don't make them this, like the thing, the beauty with yoga, especially with autism is it's it's self-regulated. So it's done to tolerance. Nobody's in, like, I'm not in anybody's space, touching, forcing, you know, like getting in their energy field and <laughs> causing discomfort. Yeah. Um, it's just, I outline the class. I do a lot of it with it because they're visual. If I stop, they stop. So I show them and I check and then I join them again. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of, you know, copy me or show me how you can do this. And mm -hmm. um, rather than do this, or do, you yeah. know, it's, 
it's it's uh, and and some do everything and some do a little bit and what I found is not to judge um how much I think someone is or isn't getting out of it um I have a you know a mother and and I, I think I share those stories um they started coming a few years back and her son, I, I know what it's like when my child was young to be the mom that like, nobody wants to see your kid coming. Like it's, mm. you know, it's not a fun place to be. And so, and even though you're trying your hardest and doing everything you could even think of, like, you, you know, you don't have control over another person's behavior. So she'd come and, and bring her son and he was a preteen at the time, maybe, maybe just barely 13. And so at first he'd try to run out of the room and this, and he would maybe just do a couple postures, but then we'd get to deep relaxation. And even if he was noisy for most of it, there'd be a point where he'd take a deep breath and then let it go. And so I, I heard that time from other parents, like, oh my gosh, they took like a full deep breath and relaxation and let it go. And so anyway, I just let, you know, he does his thing. She's doing that. He's doing a little bit, but he's getting better about staying in class. And now he doesn't even try to leave you, <laughs> but so I, you know, it'd be when somebody can look and go, he's not getting anything out of it. He's not doing anything, this and that. And so she came to me like a month in, just like almost in tears, thanking me for not asking her to leave. Like she was just waiting for one more place to ask them to leave. And so it makes me emotional. Think about it. This is what I want to provide. You know, families need a safe place where the kids aren't forced to be who they're not, but they're, so they can be their authentic selves, but they're also given tools so that they can have this assistance to function in the society with which we live like that's the balance I find my son allowing him to be who he is but also as a parent setting him up for success in this world like you also have to really kind of know how to you know interact uh in the world around you so it's that that balance um so yeah that's I just think it's so you know it's so important it's so beneficial um for the kids for all kids it's the balance between being, letting them be who they are, but also being a guide to sort of nudge them into the right place. So then, as you said, they can integrate into society and they're not separate from it and that they can, they can be a part of the world with. Right. Yoga helps with energy management you know, like pranayama energy management. So yoga helps with that. You know, the aura is, um, it smooths out during yoga. So what I'm, we're finding with these kids is when they come into posture in the yoga posture, the aura expands to what we would call like normal size, quote unquote, um, because it's not, it's contracted the rest of the time The auras are contracted tight in around the body. And most of the expression comes up through the forehead. So these are special needs, especially those with autism. So the yoga posture including meditation, mantra, all of that brings the aura for more full coverage, like to a more normal size. I mean, I just find it fascinating. Things on the feet, when we have to position the feet, it fires the brain. Like, so <laughs> there's just things I find fascinating. So I, I feel like it really helps with energy management and giving tools for, you know, even if the kids don't talk and can't identify, they're anxious, they're worried, they're, you know, nervous. Like we give tools for that without even having to say if you feel this way you're gonna do this it's your experience and then they go home and do what makes them feel good so their energy field normalizes mm -hmm. instead of being constricted mm -hmm. it starts to open up which i imagine also has a correlation to their um their obviously their physical body and also mm -hmm. their their me mental state i imagine would expand and be more open instead of yeah it's a whole body it just gives a little more smooth coverage sometimes they're so concentrated up here in the head area that you know the body is neglected and so this kind of smooths mm -hmm. it out gives them a more full coverage throughout the body so that's in yoga posture like the breaks in between it, it contracts again so but what i find is i think as the as there's practice with it, there's more tolerance to an average size aura. So it's like the more you can experience that in a safe place, then, you know, as you continue the practice, there's less need to pull in so tight. So when you're in a controlled environment, like a yoga studio, as you say, the safe place where they can mm -hmm. practice these things and these techniques, 
they're they're able to 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 that can feel more normal for them more um they're uh more uh they're they're used to it more and so then they can maybe take that out into the world with them and then feel more comfortable being more open and and more relaxed yeah and i know that's definitely not something that happens overnight but what it i see the little things like they all will have and, and mantra seems to be a thing that they like to do especially with the hands so the kids that have been coming for a long time they all have their favorite. So some of the favorites are the satanama with the fingers. So some find a lot of that. Um, that's kind of the go-to. So again, it's it's interesting. The ones that come long enough to learn some of the mantras, and we do some quite regularly. Um, they they like they know. Like my son will tell me he he'll just call it, and and I I have always listened because I think like intuitively he just knows. So if he's not feeling good or if he's having an off day, and and he you know, grew up with me and with the tradition for the most part. So yeah, he'll be like, we we'll driving in the car. Um, I need you to chant seven waves satanam with me. I'm like, okay, now, yes, now. So, you know, I mean, he just, it, I mean, it'll just be random stuff too, but this is a kid who, when we started, didn't speak. So I, you know, I'm not saying, oh gosh, this was a cure-all, but I, you know, I listen. Yeah. And he intuitively, you know, asks for things. Do you think that there's something, I mean, one of the powers of mantra is the repetition mm. and the ability to, to, to allow the brain to really focus. And then when you connect to the sound current, of course, there's all the stuff about resonance and, and, the, and the connection with uh, um, that which is greater than us as well as each other when, when doing mantra and um, I always found it fascinating how it, it operates on all these different levels. And it reminded me a little bit also of, you know, especially like the Sata, Nama um, and, and others that they reminded me a little bit of how when you're a little kid and you're learning nursery rhymes <laughs> like that and, you know, row, row, row your boat and all that stuff. And there's something about the, the rhythm and the repetition and the doing it with the other people and it, it connects you to something you know, beyond yourself. And maybe that's part of the, the thing that they really enjoy because it has to be, I imagine if you're someone who has these, these issues, what, what, whether it's Tourette's or autism or any of these developmental issues that it's gotta be really stressful and really frustrating a lot of the time when you are that kid. And so when you can do this thing with these other people that's got to be really uh soothing and um and, and a feel having a feeling of connectivity yeah like creating the connectivity but creating like the sound and again it doesn't even matter if they can say the words a lot of them have like my nonverbal kids still are using their voice it's like something they can use their voice at just to you know be in the vibration and the movement is key too so because so many have repetitive movements or rocking and things like that so you, we add movement with it and it's it almost just naturally um i think feeds a need a, a desire mm-hmm. for instance my son right now like he the rocking back and forth is still something that he does at 23 and he calls it hammering. Like he has a name for it. I'm hammering. We, yeah. we, we go through a dining room chair every year because that, you know, it's just the, the hammering finally busts the back of the chair out. So we're still replacing furniture, but, um, so his current one is, um, the Tantra cod. So it's like, it's playing all the time. He's like, oh, and he's using it now to get out of doing chores. Uh, I'm meditating. So he's on the couch and he's got the rock going and he's chanting so that's his current but there's just something and I think you know like like the things you point out too but I think just even the basics of the way it works in the mouth so like upper palate hypothalamus you know travels up pineal pituitary and and I think it's you know it's still that that we stimulate all that stuff and the glands here because we're chanting it helps to bring harmony and balance to the body so it's so it's equalizing the body chemistry at the same time when you're making contact with that. And like you said, stimulating the, the uh, pituitary and the, the hypothalamus and the pineal gland also where all the magic happens. Yeah, I think it's yeah, physiological and very much um, like on that energetic as well. Like, so it's it, you know, like it's embodied yoga, body, mind, spirit. I mean, that's really what it is. It's... It's that connection with everything. There's postures that bring um, 
bring us into like the core of our energy where we can function best. I, I, I hesitate to say where we should be you know, <laughs> because that sounds so judgmental and, you know, not to exclude a lot of the words too, I use with the kids. It's simply description. I don't like to put labels. Um, right. We had one meeting once where they were, Oh, I think, you know, trying to give my son a new diagnosis and this label and this, and this was, he was young, but it's an outdated, uh, at one point they wanted to give him the diagnosis of mental retardation. And that's very outdated. It's not given anymore. So this was in elementary school. And I mean, my husband about came up out of his chair and I thought, oh God, that's not going to be good. And I just said, you know, write whatever you need to on your paper. He's getting good services. I'm not going to limit him by what you write on that paper. And so that's why I feel like, um, I don't like to limit. I don't like to give labels. Uh, so I, the words I use, I use as description. Um, mm -hmm. I just like to qualify that because some adults are very, you know, I, and I talked to my son about it. Do you like to be called autistic or do you like to, you have autism? I mean, that changes too. And everyone has an opinion. So I just like say, you know, I, I just use these words as description. Yeah. Because when there's a thing about people identifying as their condition versus being a person first who happens to have a certain condition, there's a, there's a vast difference in that because one is an identifier. It's like saying, a diabetic, I'm, I'm a diabetic is different from, I have diabetes. Yeah. And some people, and people like it, but some people like it one way, the other side, so just right, trying right, to be right. respectful. Like, yeah. Okay. So, but so, yeah, it's that whole body phenomena that we affect and it's what, you know, it's with everybody, but I, I guess I'm just so passionate about seeing the changes with the, yeah. With those that, um, like maybe don't have the voice. So one of the things we do too, because I do teach a lot of um, in schools and even that come to my classes who are not verbal or who do not have spontaneous speech so they can pair it, but they aren't not going to sit and have a conversation with you. Oh, Hey, how are you doing? I'm the, you know, so, um, so yeah, just finding ways to communicate. So for instance, we do longtime sunshine song, we sing it and we do it in American sign language. So, you know, it's a, it's a language, but we don't have to, you don't have to use your voice. Right. Right. Just finding alternatives, choices to get everybody involved and connected. So like everybody can participate at a level that's good for them. Mm -hmm. And then tell me about, uh, tell me about this new book that you're working on now. Ah, I'm working on, okay. So this is, I know this one just barely came out in August, Yoga Bowl, but, um, so one of the chapters, so, I, I, we kind of went off. I, I, I feel like I, you know, I've been pulled in this direction. This is definitely like my niche for teaching yoga, but I did start as a drug and alcohol counselor and I have spent, you know, years in, in treatment centers. Um, and so this book, it focuses on yoga for special populations. So initially one of the chapters was going to be yoga for addiction recovery. I'm like, okay, this is a special population. It was just going to be one chapter in the book. And I started writing and it took on a life of its own. I'm like, oh no, this is coming out because that's its whole thing. So I just kind of put it to the side and I went through this. I didn't give it a lot of thought. You know, I'm, I'm like, okay, it's going to be its own thing, but I didn't know what, you know, at the time. So this got the manuscript that was just published, got sent to the editor and it, it hung out there for <laughs> eight months. So in the meantime, like about a year ago, you know, we got, we were on lockdown. I'm taking all these courses on Zoom, basic things I, you know, I don't have to travel to the East Coast. I don't have to travel here. I was just, and so most of them were like either yoga or spiritually oriented. Let's put it that way. So I feel like, okay, I got some growth in. And so while that was sitting in the publisher and even about a year ago, I would just wake up at four in the morning and stuff would just pour out about addiction and recovery. Like I would just let it go. So the title that came to me and I love it because it's exactly what we're doing is eight limbs, 10 bodies and 12 steps. Uh -huh. So the weave and so chakras are in there too, but like the principles like just fit together so well. And so I just kind of outline, you know, what are the chakras? What are the eight limbs? What are the 10 bodies? Here's the 12 steps. Now, how do they all work together? What are the similarities? And then I'll give some yoga and meditation sets. Um, and also a little education, like what is addiction? So right. anyone can pick it up, whether they're recovering themselves, maybe it's a family member, maybe someone who just wants to know a little something about it or a teacher, yoga teacher, oh, I'm going to go into a treatment center. What can I expect? So a little bit about the kind of the psyche of addiction. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And then all this yoga, because I knew it as soon as I sat in my first class, I'm like, oh, I get this. I understand this principle. It took my personal recovery to a whole new level because the meditation was so tangible. Like that worked for me to sit down and just say, okay, now I'm good. I, I tried for years. Let me just sit and tell my mind to be quiet. Good luck. Yeah. So for me, like the mantra and the movement, the meditation that was physical and had mantra, like just, I feel like the tangibles were that it that comes to mind like that just so worked for me so it took my like life to a whole new level mm -hmm. and it also like you know I, I always think it's such a great thing when someone who is doesn't has never done meditation before and they come to you and they're really worried because they say I can't I can't stop my thoughts and you say to them you know, much to their relief, well, you, you're never going to stop your thoughts. So don't worry about it. You just, but the idea is not to attach yourself to your thoughts. So you just watch them just like the clear blue sky, watch the clouds pass by and you just sort of, you know, wave to them and acknowledge them, but you don't have to get tied up in them. And then they, they're, they're like, oh, oh, good. <laughs> you know, they don't have to stop. Yeah. Because all you're thinking about is stopping those thoughts and then you're not in a meditative state at all. So it's, it's quite stressful. That's right. Yes. Well, that's the thing. It's like, they would say, oh, I find it really stressful. And that's mm -hmm. why, you know, and then when you tell them that, no, 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 the idea is not to stop your thoughts. They're just so relieved. And then they're, and then they stop judging themselves, you know, because they're thinking they're doing it wrong. And, you know, the other thing about folks especially who have addiction issues or are in recovery or newly into you know rehab or whatever the situation is there's a lot of self-judgment and a lot of self-loathing and and you know all that stuff so when when that burden is taken away with regard to meditation it's just such a beautiful thing to see because they're able to like let themselves be held in this state of grace as opposed to having it be an ordeal right yeah, relaxation. So just even relaxing the the worry about things. That's one of the best thing we can give people new and recovery. That's one of the best things yoga can deliver. And Definitely. where do you mind, like in terms of addiction? Because some people just don't have that gene. They addiction is not. They can even be substance abusers in their young life. As right. And then they like finish college and they're fine. <laughs> right, but they don't, but they don't become addicts. And then there are the other people, a certain segment of the population, a pretty large segment of the population where addiction really gets them. And it, and it, and it isn't even to do necessarily with what they were exposed to, but um, that pattern of addiction, even if it's not substance abuse, because, uh, you know, as you know, addiction is, is a, is, it's a, a kind of an obsessive behavior that cannot be controlled in in whatever area that is whether that's sex or gambling or drugs or alcohol or whatever where do you think the genesis of addiction comes from uh, that's a really an interesting question so i think that there's definitely like a genetic expression that people sometimes people think you are you aren't and you don't know until you you know add alcohol or drugs right. but there are other predisposing factors so environment can be one you know like this is what everybody's doing so it's acceptable i just go there and at some point it crosses the line uh, like psychological would be the self-medicating you know for whether it be depression or any other mental illness sometimes it's like just trying to self-medicate and then you know again you can take it at some point it crosses the line um it, social you know same thing just like the influence and then uh so you can have like all of those or none of these but if you don't have any of the others you're still going to have it's physiological so it's just the way that your body processes because i see people come from all walks of life whether it's been like you're just raised in a drug culture image or like your parents were teetotalers and you were never experienced it's like you know so it can be all of these predisposing factors or like simply the physiological like it's just the way the body reacts to the chemicals and then the you know the mind and the cycle goes and it's like right. that obsession it's like some people just can't they just can't have one because right. <laughs> one is all it takes and you're it, it's in that like cycle chips. <laughs> yeah 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 uh, yeah and so they do talk about all of it whether it's food this you know there's there's definitely 
different ways that addictions manifest. Also, I had heard that there's quite a large percentage of people who have an underlying mental health issue that is perhaps not diagnosed or not, uh, not seen or acknowledged that that is an underlying factor in a lot of um, cases of addiction. Right. So what's interesting is just kind of being plugged into the field for the last 30 or so years, that's more prevalent now than it was 20, 30 years ago. Now, whether we just have a better awareness of it, I don't know, or if it really is. So I could kind of go on a tangent here. Um, you know, this movement into the Aquarian age has caused a lot more pressure. And so we are seeing addiction and mental illness like we humankind hasn't seen before. There's the, you know, the epidemics that we're yeah. experiencing. So I, I honestly think that there is an, an, an increase in both. And so then sometimes it definitely goes hand in hand. So I, it seems like 30 years ago, there was a little more separation. And yes, there were people that were dual diagnosed and, and you know, places are desperately needed to, to specialize in that treatment. You know, there's, there's a few good places, but I think we need more of that. So now I think a lot of treatment centers are finding that to be the case and, and addressing both, but I, I really think there's, um, there is an increase in, um, you know, mental illness too, just with the squeeze that the earth has been on and, and this transition, this kind of rocky road. And I mean, I've been talking about this for 10 years and who knew what the last two years were going to bring. Like we just keep thinking, Oh, the squeeze is on. It's going to be, it works before it gets better. We're walking this rocky road and just here, we're going to squeeze even tighter. So. Well, there's also, um, the element of modern, especially modern Western culture is very disconnected. It's not like we're living in small tribal groups where everybody knows their place and the family unit is intact, where we're disconnected. And one of the things, um, my fiance is actually 23 years sober. And mm -hmm. so he, and, and he, uh, he sponsors a lot of people. And um, yeah, I've, I've been to many, many meetings with him um, just, you know, because I'm his partner. So I, you know, go to these things. And, and one of the things that's so beautiful about, um, uh, the secret society, I, I call it, um, is the, is the fellowship and the connection. So for people who are in recovery, they are connected. There is purpose, there is meaning. And I, I think a lot of people who maybe fall into addiction or, or maybe they're made more vulnerable to it whether or not they're genetically predisposed to it is a feeling of disconnectedness because all the people that I've spoken to who've been in recovery, they all talk about um, at a certain time in their life, they felt disconnected or something had happened, you know, a divorce, a death or something. And they didn't have people around them who were a really good um, safety net, just in terms of, you know, people being there or having that kind of social support. Um, so I imagine that that's, um, that's, that's another factor too, is, is disconnection versus connection and meaning and purpose in life too. Right. right. No, I, that's so true because I think it is, it's so valued in our culture or to be on your own, to be self-sufficient and this and that. So it's like, there is that disconnect to take it even a step further, you know, when something happens, there's trauma. So I think there's trauma and there's disconnect. There's a lot of um, history of trauma for people who, so I, I didn't list that as a predisposing factor, but you know, if I like reflecting, I think, um, you know, the trauma that's experienced and gone through, whether it be a divorce or abuse, you know, it could be yeah. anything. Um, a lot of people, it's abuse. But, I, I know a lot of people who became addicts, and it turns out that in their life, as a ch they they were they were molested as children. They experienced you know some really really serious stuff, and a lot of they wanted to just shut it out rather mm -hmm. than dealing with it because they didn't know how to deal with it because they were too young to know. Yeah, and that's where that disconnection, like you're saying, there's not. It's like we're still like oh, self-sufficient. This there. So I, I yeah, yeah. And especially with those with mental illness, because they, so many people, I'm thinking just of people that, you know, I've run across in this, it's like, they've kind of been shunned from the family. They're on their own anyway, and you're struggling. So there is, it's like, it makes an even greater divide and, and causes more suffering. So fellow community and fellowship is key. And I, I make those comparisons in yoga, like Sangha, you know, we have, it's, it's about the group. It's not about 
me, 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 me. <laughs> right, right, right. And and I also think about um, a lot of the homeless population um, dealing with mental illness and addiction issues. And if you're and if you're not already suffering from those things before you hit the street, you're certainly going to be. It's going to hit you because you're not going to be able to cope with it because no human being is really able to, nor should they have to. But yet there it is, you know. So that's a that's a whole nother kettle of fish because how do you know. do that, you know? But for the for the people who are who are recovering from trauma, who are um, recovering from um, addiction. Uh, I mean, what, what an amazing thing that you began in that world and now you, you know, then you segged over into teaching yoga and how you have a particular uh, sensitivity and a connection with people who have these special needs. And it's almost like you were guided, you know? I didn't see it coming. There's been years in the past, you know, you've probably heard there's some and I was saying, oh, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. And so I remember having many days like, you know, I, thanks for your vote of confidence, but I, I'm just not <laughs> sure today, you know, like you have a list. So, so but yeah, like I, I often reflect on that path. It's been amazing. And like, who knows what's to come? But yeah, it's. Yeah, the whole thing was even writing. I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm not an author. I'm not, you know, but okay here I am I guess I guess I am and I look at it like I didn't have to make up a novel and a story I got to organize some information and share some good stuff so it's not like I had to come up with a plot to, you to know, entertain the, people the other thing I was thinking is you know how sometimes what comes naturally to us is not necessarily the thing that we think we're particularly good at or that mm -hmm. we think that we have to offer because for us it's second nature you know, and then somebody else has to come along and say, wow, you should write a book about this because you have all this experience, you know, what, how fantastic, and then you think, yeah, I do have a lot of experience in this. And then, then you're, you open yourself to the idea that, hey, maybe I am an author, you know, and I, I love that your first book came to you in the form of a title Yogable, and then it manifested itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, from there. And I really did have to, you, and you mentioned like experience, I really had to come to terms with that, because there is a lot of that self doubt and the self denial at first, like, I, oh, I can't, you know, this and that. I'm like, well, wait a minute, I've been teaching this population for 10 years, I know what I'm doing. I mean, I have to have these kind of conversations with myself, because it's so easy to like, well, somebody else's writer, like somebody else does that better, you, you know, whatever it is, but to like, honestly own like, oh, I have these years of experience and I can share information that would help a lot of, you know, parents, teachers, yoga teachers, fitness instructors, you know? Yeah. So I thought I had to, had to have those conversations <laughs> and I think some of it gets worked out through meditation too. <laughs> For sure. And I, I'm reminded, as you were saying that, I was reminded of this quote from Martin Luther King. I'm not going to get it right. I don't know the exact quote, but it is essentially, um, he said, ask yourself, who, who am I to be exceptional? And then ask yourself, who am I not to be? Mm. Like, almost as though there's a certain arrogance to think that you're not exceptional, you know, but really it's about asking yourself, well, who am I not to be? Of course I have something to offer, of course, you know, because we all do, we all have gifts. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of really the whole essence of the book is, you know, like everybody just knowing we all have our own unique gifts for this time and space. And and these kids that come into our lives and are challenging <laughs> for many people, you know, and society and I would say even society, I mean, it's not just in the home, it extends to the grandparents and this and that. I mean, they're they're teaching us to be present and authentic and to love in a, a very deep and unconditional way. So it's like we're everybody's here bringing what they're supposed to. So, yeah. Bringing what they're supposed to. I like that. <laughs> How's that for my, my fancy vocabulary? We're bringing what we're supposed to. <laughs> but it's, you know, like that simple. <laughs> that's I, So that's the message too, is really just keeping it simple. Mm -hmm. And showing up as yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, because there's no, and, and in a certain way, I think these, these kids or adults, you know, with special needs, 
they they can't not show up as themselves right so there's a certain authenticity in that you know that we can all learn from and and having them present you can't not show up as yourself either so like they'll they hold you accountable whether they can talk or not so it's like <laughs> yeah that's wonderful. Well, I, I think this is a really, this is the perfect place to tie it into a bow. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Patty. I so appreciate you doing this. It's been great. Yeah, this has been a very enjoyable conversation. Thanks. Thank and a special huge thank you to my guest, Patty Willison, for her time today. What a talk. That was great. You can also pick up her book, Yoga Bowl, A Gentle Approach to Yoga for Special Populations, anywhere books are sold. And also remember there is a soundtrack CD that you can pick up anywhere music is sold. Mantras sung by her friend and mine, Vicki Jopdottom Rose, anywhere you can find music online or in stores, also called Yogable. Take good care of yourselves, take good care of each other. And as always, I will see you on the other side. Thanks for listening.